Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. The two verses we're going to look at today are verses 41 and 42. And I don't know how your Bible breaks them up, but uh, it, mine is not very helpful because it acts as though verse 41 is part of verses 38 to 40, and verse 42 starts a new section. Does yours break that up the same way? It's really not very helpful because really 41 and 42 go together. So this is verse 41. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Our titles, our tasks, our roles help us to understand what's expected of us. Well, that's very much the kind of thing the disciples are asking of Jesus. Give us a title. Tell us what we're supposed to do. And Jesus is trying to do that, but because we don't think of leadership or kingdoms or anything like that the way He does, it's impossibly hard for Him. We said last week that in the kingdom of God, God determines the ministry. That God decides who goes where and when. So the disciples' first stab, right? We talked about this last week. Their first stab at trying to figure out who they are is to, is to start exercising authority over who does what in the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not your authority. God gets to decide who does the ministry. If he's not against you, he's for you. So just let him go. So what is their role? Well, this is what Jesus is trying to answer. And so I'm going to deal with this first verse really quickly. We're going to spend almost all of our time on the second. Verse 41, I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. He comes right along with Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples, and he says, no, you're not going to decide who gets to do the ministry and where. That's not your authority. The Holy Spirit hasn't been given you to distribute among the people the way that you want it distributed. God is always going to do that. It's not your thing. But I will tell you that you will be protected. Because anybody in the kingdom who gives you a cup of water because you belong to me will be rewarded. So they do have a place. And the community is supposed to take care of them. But then verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. This is the role that the disciples are to play. They're to guard against that. But how is that going to work? 
So two words I want to define before we begin this part of the conversation, which is really the heart of the sermon today. I want to first define the term apostle. So apostle is the title Jesus gave to these 12 guys. An apostle, by definition, in the New Testament, is someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And there are three categories of apostles in the First Testament, I mean in the New Testament. So there's this huge group of people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. If you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the very beginning there, you'll find Paul listing over 500 people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And he calls them all apostles. Those are apostles, little a. Anyone who had personal, first-hand experience with the resurrected Jesus is an apostle. But then there are 12 apostles, capital A, who are set apart by Jesus. And they also, like all apostles, experience the resurrected Jesus. But they have a unique set of experiences with Jesus that's beyond just encountering Him in His resurrected form. These are a group of people who have witnessed everything Jesus did from the time that He was baptized by John the Baptist until He ascended into heaven, 10 days before the Feast of Pentecost. Those are the 12. You can find that definition of apostle in Acts chapters 1 and 2. And then there are three out of those 12 who are even more privileged. And these are Peter, James, and John who were present for events that even the other 12 weren't present for. Uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, for instance, in Mark the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration that we read at the beginning of chapter 9. So, but the thing that ties Apostle together all the way across the board is that they had a first-hand eyewitness encounter with the risen Jesus. Now the second uh, title is Prophet. And that is important that we understand what a prophet is because all this stuff coalesces in what Jesus is trying to say. A prophet we think of as someone who tells the future. But that is not really true to the definition of a prophet in Israel. Now, prophets did foretell the future, but they did that only occasionally. And when they did it, it was for a reason. The real task of a prophet in Israel was to take whatever was happening at the present moment in the life of the people and to evaluate it by the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in our Bible, and to decide if the people were living faithful here to what was said there. And most of the time they weren't. And so the prophets often had to criticize the people for not living in light of the law. That's the role of prophet. And so the prophets were not popular, and they lived outside the camp, and they often found themselves, you know, kind of yelling through windows. They almost never had the floor. And the better the king was, the more access the prophet had. So David is a very good king. Prophet Nathan more or less lives with him. But wicked kings like Ahab and Jezebel, the prophet is out there living in the desert, Elijah, eating locusts and honey and fending for his life all the time. Because the more wicked the king, the less access the prophet had. And so prophets in ancient Israel were uh, destabilizing forces. They were measures of self-correction. They were the ones who were tasked with looking at the people of Israel and telling them whether or not they were healthy. So apostles are those who had first-hand experiences with Jesus. Prophets are those who are tasked with taking the words God has spoken and using them to evaluate the present life and situation of the people. 
And when the people were living wickedly, prophets often had to predict future events that were inevitably going to occur because of their disobedience. And they do that. So those definitions are essential. Because what Jesus is doing here, and I know it looks hidden, but it's hidden right in that language. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now Jesus, the disciples are continuing to walk and they've changed context, but Jesus, he never forgets the context. He just keeps the conversation going. But he's looking back to verse 36. If you have your Bible still open, chapter 9, verse 36. When they were arguing about being the greatest, Jesus said this to them. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And then verse 42 just picks that context right up. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. What is Jesus doing? A few weeks ago, when we talked about leadership in the kingdom, of the way the Romans would have heard that teaching of Jesus that he was telling leaders in the kingdom to submit themselves to the lowest rung of society, children. But that's not how Jewish believers would likely have heard what Jesus was saying. And the disciples are Jewish. In Judaism, that word child is not always used to simply refer to a young person. There's a sort of a metaphorical use of the word child, and it comes out of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a book written to help us recognize what kind of fool we are. Wisdom begins with the admission that we're foolish, that in some way we need instruction. The most dangerous person in the book of Proverbs is the one who is wise in his own eyes. So what kind of fool are we? There are better and worse fools, and you can go back, uh, you'd have to be part of the study to hear all of them. But the one that I'm interested in today is the Hebrew word petit. Petit. And a petit in Hebrew is a fool who's a fool because they're ignorant. Because they're, they're young, they're uneducated. It's sometimes translated simpleton. That kind of a fool is the best kind of fool to be. A person who knows they just don't know. And in many ways, Jesus' entire ministry is trying to get these people who think they're really smart and really wise, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, to recognize that they are petit, that they are fools that they are ignorant, that they need to be instructed. And when that Hebrew word petit is translated into Greek, and the New Testament's written in Greek, it's usually translated with the word child. So for a Jewish person, what they would have heard Jesus saying is that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be willing to invest yourself in fools. Children. Ignorant folks, simpletons, the petit. And if anyone leads one of them into sin, these people who come for instruction, if anyone falsely teaches them and leads them into rebellion against God, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone hung around their neck and drowned in the ocean. Now, I'm thinking that's bad news for anybody. But for Judaism, particularly bad news, because in Jewish culture, that meant that the body would sink to the ocean and it wouldn't come back for burial. And so it would be improperly buried, which is an additional curse and all that. So with that analogy, drawing off the embracing of children earlier in the passage, Jesus situates the apostles as people who are to be blessed. I'm going to put the pieces together now. People who are to be blessed, if you give a cold, a cold cup of water to them, 
there'll be a blessing for anyone who does it. They are to be blessed, and they are tasked with making sure that the instruction in the church is consistent with the teachings of God. It's a correction to the problem in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, the prophets were the ones tasked with helping the community to evaluate themselves and decide whether they were living faithful to the story of God. That was their role. But they did it from the outside. They had to take care of and fend for themselves because they were a destabilizing force. They didn't come from the power structures. The king didn't decide who a prophet was going to be. The priest didn't. God called them on his own. And they spoke in to the crowd from the outside. And the people usually killed them. Almost always they were killed by the people they were tasked with helping. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus is changing leadership. He's saying in the kingdom of God, the leaders are to be the prophets. Now faithfulness in the community of faith is to offer a cup of water to those whose task is to evaluate our communal life and our personal lives by the Word of God. And if we're out of step, to make us uncomfortable. And if we're in step, to encourage us. This is the role of the apostles in the church. So why are the apostles chosen? They are chosen to ensure that the new community never stops listening to the story of Jesus. That's their authority. What Jesus is calling the church to be, the kingdom of God to be, is people who leave the authority structures and go out in the wilderness and gather around the prophet and evaluate themselves and then go back in. That's the kingdom of God. This is important for us because that role of prophet was handed down. The role of apostle couldn't be handed down because you could not hand down first-hand experience with Jesus. Couldn't do it. But the role of prophet in the church could be handed down, and Paul did it with a young man named Timothy and a young man named Titus. You can read their books. And what Paul did was he inserted in the early Christian communities a person tasked with one task primarily, to make sure that the community never stopped listening to and evaluating itself by God's story. And that was Timothy's job. He was called a presbyter. Eventually, priests, and by Protestants, pastor. Because we always forget. Because we live our lives and we make our decisions based on our own instinct and our own felt needs and our own best interest. And we forget that this is about Jesus, that it's about death, it's about resurrection, it's about transformation, and it's not about survival or thriving or prosperity or anything else. And our job is to come week after week before the Word of God and remember the story again. That is the task. And it's the task of profit. You see, the world has forgotten God. It's forgotten God's story. It's forgotten the foundational teachings out of which all of our decisions need to be made. But the role of the church, why we've been left here, is to be salt and light salt and light in the world, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who John tells us is here to convict the world of sin and to remind them of righteousness. This is why we are here. 
So for us, we are in the world to be prophets. To be priests. To be those who mediate God to a world that has forgotten Him. Who keep telling the story of God's redemption with our lives and our behavior and our mouths. We're there to remind them of the story that makes sense of all the stories. We're there to rehearse the story of God. This is what it means to be the church. And why we gather and why we go. The story of God. And Jesus is saying to his apostles, you're not here to have power. You're not here to decide who gets to do ministry when and where. You're not here to set the vision for the whole community and tell them when they're allowed to do what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to do it. You're not here for that. You're here so that the community never forgets my story. So what is leadership in the kingdom? Leadership. Leadership in the kingdom of God is evaluating everything by the story of God. And we are here so the world never forgets His story. Are you living the story?